Hi, my name is Sam Sheen, and welcome to season two of our podcast, Captivated Audience. I'm joined as always by my friend and professional colleague, Marilyn Berg. Good day, Marie. How are you doing? Hi, Sam. I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? How's, how's things in London? Wet, wet, wet. I think that our guest is actually calling in from London too, is she? She is indeed, and it is our absolute pleasure to introduce someone brand new to our podcast, Annalise Veneer. Welcome to our podcast, Annalise. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we thought we decided to do something rather interesting. We thought we'd actually bring in one of our fellow financial crime prevention professionals to talk about some study and analysis she has done in our area. Isn't that right, Marie? Yes, I think it's time for us to dive into the results from your thesis, Annalise, which is called The Awkward Question, an examination of questioning techniques used by banks to prevent financial crime. So let's kick off, because if you haven't met Annalise before, you probably don't know about her background and why she's one of the clan when it comes to financial crime prevention. So Annalise, can you just tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yes, sure. So at the moment, I'm working in the UK for a large international bank where I'm primarily involved in ensuring that the relationship managers and the frontline staff are aware of the financial crime risks that are faced by the bank and that they understand how to mitigate those risks appropriately. And I also get involved in how they identify those risks and how we put processes and procedures and policy together to help them understand clearly what their responsibilities and obligations are. Tell me a little bit more, though, about your background. How did you actually come to be involved in financial crime prevention? Because we've had a variety of speakers on this podcast who come from all different careers before they joined this area. Well, I actually went into financial services straight from school when I was barely 16. And it wasn't actually my vocation of choice. It was more a case that I didn't know what else I was going to do. (laughs) And I ended up working in an accounts department for an insurance company. And that then transitioned into working in the claims department. And I ended up specialising in fraud investigations, which to me was actually quite interesting. I guess it's that sort of investigative background that then quite naturally transitioned into AML investigations later on in my career when I moved across into banking. So I think I've got quite a naturally inquisitive mind and I like asking questions and finding out information and digging, especially if I can find something wrong. I've been enhancing my career along the way by becoming a chartered insurance practitioner and I was a fellow of the Chartered Insurance Institute. And having taken all of those exams, I then started on a master's in forensic accounting. Part of that course looked at investigative interviewing, which aligning with my own sort of inquisitive mind, I found really interesting, particularly so because working in insurance at the time, it was really important that we got a good account from customers as to what had actually happened with the claim. What really struck me was that part of the course was actually looking at the use of memory and how we recall certain events and how different questions can have such a huge impact on the way that information is recalled. Obviously, when you're looking at claims, it's really important that you get a good, truthful, accurate account from the customer. But often what you're asking them might be information that they're trying to recall from sometimes many years before. So it's really important that you give them the best opportunity to give a truthful and accurate account of what's actually happened. And in doing so, you quite naturally weed out any sort of fraudulent activity that you might find there. Now, obviously, when I moved across into banking, it struck me that actually we're faced with very similar sorts of problems in the AML investigations that we do. It became quite apparent very early on to me that the quality of the questions that were being asked was not where it should be. 
and also that the quality of the information we were getting back either from the relationship managers or from the customers was really really poor and it struck me that actually again it's the way we're asking those questions and the opportunities we're giving either the relationship managers or the customers to give a full and truthful account was really not where it should be and I at the same time as moving into banking had started on a doctorate in criminal justice the two kind of naturally went hand in hand and being in banking gave me the opportunity to explore that in a lot more detail. So tell us a little bit about the thesis itself because you've actually done something about what you noticed was a problem you've actually gone and done a deep dive into it. Yes that's right I mean as I said I'd noticed through my actual work that um, the quality of questions wasn't I thought it should be and through my studies as well I'd noticed that the investigative interviewing and questioning techniques that were being used in the police and in other public services like the NHS and the DWP weren't actually being replicated within banking at all. There seemed to be absolutely no knowledge or comprehension that these techniques even existed. And I found this interesting because I thought, well, if the police and the public sector are using all of these particular techniques, why has it been completely overlooked within banking? Annalise, asking the awkward question, it is sometimes a balance between the no tipping off rule and maintaining a good customer relationship and yet trying to get the customer to disclosure information that is to them extremely private and perhaps even in certain cultures taboo. What were some of your observations on this topic? Well, a lot of the research I did indicated that talking about money is just a really taboo subject in most Western cultures anyway. There's very few of us that will openly discuss our salaries or our incomes. And apparently the British are seven times more likely to discuss their sex lives than they are their incomes. And if you then start to factor in cultural differences, global diversity and so on, you've got a sort of ever-expanding problem. A lot of bank staff may actually feel quite intimidated by some of the customers that they're dealing with. So I think it's really important that we give them the tools to ask those questions effectively. So let me go back to your thesis because you cover a lot of interesting things I'd like to kind of tease out a bit relationship managers and the challenges and how that plays out in practice. As part of your thesis, you talk about a case called Parzivi and some of the court's observations about how that interaction happens. Can you just explain that case a little bit? Yeah, sure. So this was um, Parvezi v. Barclays um, back from 2014. The reason this was quite notable for me was because the judge actually stated in that case that it was really surprising that the compliance officer who was dealing with the case had filed a SAR without even attempting to approach the relationship manager. And the judge actually said that they described that as being an obvious step in the investigation. And I think this case really highlights the fact that it's really important that we involve the relationship manager before deciding whether or not to file a SAR, at least giving the the relationship manager the opportunity to engage with the customer and find out what's actually going on is absolutely key. And this is starting to come out more and more through legal cases that we're seeing. But the Parvezi case is quite interesting because Mr. Parvezi ended up losing huge amounts of money simply because this SAR had been filed against him, which he felt was unjust. He didn't have the opportunity to put his side of the issue forward. And obviously the relationship manager hadn't been involved either. Quite damning for the bank in that particular instance. Okay, we are entering into the land of SARS. Annalise, can we get your view on the current situation also covered by the media? Yeah, sure. I mean, the problem that we have is that banks, certainly historically, have frequently filed completely useless SARS purely to protect themselves, which is a practice known as defensive reporting, so that they can then avoid later criticism. But there was a report compiled by Transparency International a couple of years ago, 
that indicated that around four, globally, 42% of the most serious types of SARS were either incomplete or of poor quality. Now, if we transpose that figure to the number of SARS filed just in the UK um, last year, so between 2018 and 2019, it means that over 200,000 SARS are of potentially no use to the NCA. So law enforcement globally is absolutely flooded with reports that's, that are not going to aid their investigations, which is a massive problem in itself and a huge drain on public resources. But we also need to consider the consequential impact of filing a SAR without good reason or without good explanation. So what did you identify when you did your analysis in terms of the things that are making those investigations that result in SARS so perhaps incomplete or weak? My sort of leading hypothesis was the fact that the staff who were conducting the AML investigations weren't asking the right questions, and that's what I set out to test. It all comes back to how we're phrasing those questions and how that information is subsequently recorded as well. Annalise, let's talk about data. How did the quality of the data that you were working with impact your research? The problem that I was faced with was that the RM responses were not actually captured directly in the system with the case studies that I was actually looking at. The reality was that their replies would, would have either been emailed to the compliance officer or they perhaps might have had a discussion, but nine times out of ten it was by email. And the only way that response was formally documented was by the compliance officer writing a summary of what the RM had said. The problem with capturing things in this type of way is that each person is only going to have a view as to what they think are the key points that need to be documented. So that will be driven by their own view, their own bias, their, their own objectives and so on. So that made it really difficult to assess the quality of the information that was coming back from the relationship managers. Now you're on to something very interesting. So we're talking about information structured in emails or I was just wondering, all that information, all that data, there must be a very good way to how to sort that out. Do you, do you see the use of in artificial intelligence or machine learning coming into play here? I think not in terms of could technology help us with that? Well, I don't think so, because although it might tell us what is contained within these questions or contained within the responses, it still requires sort of human interaction to interpret that information and make sense of it. So let's talk about training then. Since that's your speciality, Sam, I'm going to hand the question over to you. <laughs> yes, training. But you've said training's a real issue. We focus so much on trying to cram in the regulations and cram in the don't tip off elements of the training. And your thesis seems to suggest the bit we miss is the actual methodology to go about doing an investigation. Is that right? Precisely. Um, I mean, I think for a large number of years now, there's been very clear guidance available as to what it is that banks need to do. And there are endless policies, procedures, and most banks, to be fair, have fairly robust processes in place which dictate what it is they're supposed to do as part of their AML investigation process. But the problem is nobody seems to have looked at how difficult it can be to ask those questions to customers. And you can't simply ring up a customer and say, this £100,000 you've paid in, where did you get it? It looks suspicious to me. <laughs> you know, there's got to be a, a better way of doing it. And there has to be a, an effective way of doing it where the customers don't feel upset. They don't feel that we're asking obtrusive questions. They don't feel that they're being challenged or interrogated. 
but I don't think we're equipping the staff who have to ask those questions with the correct tools to actually go about doing so in a customer friendly way that actually makes a customer feel valued and appreciated, um, but also can, can pull out where we have activity that is suspicious. And so I think it's really important that we go back a step and just say, hang on, what, what is the training that we need here? And I think that it's something that's perhaps been overlooked in the in the regulatory point of view as well, because the regulatory guidance that's available talks about training at a very high level and says things along the lines of you need to have staff that are appropriately trained, but it doesn't say what that means. And where it does go that little bit further, it talks about financial crime knowledge, so understanding layering, placement, tipping off and all of those things. But again, it never seems to address the point of how do we ask the customers really delicate questions about subjects that 90% of people don't want to talk about and are considered taboo. It, it's, it's, it's almost like there's a gap here which just hasn't been addressed and we just assume that relationship managers or frontline staff are able to go out and ask these questions and find out all the information we need and then we can come back and tick all our boxes or file a SAR or, or do whatever we want to do. Thinking about how we go about communicating with customers and, you know, the training needs there, that's almost like a bit of an ex-ante type of exercise, right? It's in the real time bit. But what about after the fact? So someone submits a suspicious activity report. I've got a team. They're going to investigate it. And they start trolling through our databases. Um, of course, you know, it's all about the customer experience. We don't want to disrupt the customers. So the first thing they go and chase after are the emails, right? And the written correspondence to figure out what's happened with the relationship with that customer. But you've raised some really interesting findings around why emails and written reports aren't necessarily as reliable as we expect them to be. We're already in a situation where we're not necessarily having a complete picture because the relationship manager might think that things are obvious and don't need to be explained. And likewise, the compliance officer might not give any context to their questions. So again, we have a gap and we have two different people potentially looking at the same situation, but through very different lenses. And also when we have documented information, we have the absence of negative inferences, which often get drawn from gaps in conversation. So when the compliance officer receives their explanation, perhaps for a transaction from the relationship manager, it's impossible for them to know whether that explanation was delivered spontaneously or whether the customer was directed or prompted in some way, whether intentional or not, by the relationship manager. So it's really hard to place reliability upon the written, edited version of a conversation, which again is then subject to the RM's bias as to what they're going to report um, and what they deem relevant to the investigation. So bias is one thing, and we mentioned, you know, the relationship manager and the frontline staff. Did your research find out anything when it comes down to conflict of interests as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the problem we have and this goes back many numbers of years, um, is that we're putting the relationship managers in a very difficult position because these individuals were not employed as investigators. They are there to drive revenue and their own income is generally generated by the amount of revenue they're driving. And they will often have spent years and years getting to know their customers exceptionally well, sometimes knowing the family for years, sometimes knowing the business for years and having very, very close relationships with them. And yet we're placing these people in a position where they then have to go back and challenge the customer about particular activity we might see on their account. And we then are expecting them to provide an objective and unbiased account of what's actually happened. 
And I think that puts the relationship manager in an incredibly complicated position, not necessarily fairly. Now, I don't have a better suggestion here either, because I'm not really convinced that the compliance officer is the best person to be asking the customer either, because they don't necessarily know anything about that customer. The relationship manager has had that relationship potentially for many, many years. They know, hopefully, a lot about the customer. So they are actually the best people to be asking those questions. But I think we can't simply overlook the fact that that conflict of interest exists. Annalise, I just have to throw in a question since banking and financial services online is the new normal. The uh, relationship manager is now a chatbot. The account opening is done in less than five minutes and the customer experience is a true competitive reality. What do you see as the potential risks when all communication is done non-face-to-face and in text-like messages? I think um, that's potentially going to impact the, the quality of the AML investigations even further because it does take a human to actually oversee what information we're gathering. And if you lose that human element, I think you are denying the customer the opportunity to give their view on what's actually happening. And it's all very well that we may have um, lots and lots of analytical information being given to us, which says this is out of the ordinary for this type of customer. And we can we can use all kinds of tools to help us with transaction monitoring. But that's the first stage. The next stage is to actually talk to the customer. And I think if we move away from that, we are going to end up in a situation where we depersonalize everything and we don't give the customer that opportunity to say what it is they're doing and in a lot of cases the customer will have a perfectly plausible explanation for their activity and it's about making sure that we're giving them the best opportunity to give that truthful and full account of what they're doing and we can actually make an assessment based off that. So final question for me Annalise what do we need to be doing going forward? We know we've had five AMLD. We know that we've got in the United States a lot of discussion by FinCEN and other regulators about sort of upping the game around regulatory expectations for financial crime prevention. How can we fix this? Well, I think there are certain, a certain few sort of clear things which we can do to improve things. So firstly, I think the quality of the SARS needs to be addressed. If we're filing so many thousands of SARS which are of no use to anybody and then we're taking action as banks off the back of that as well, we need to introduce some kind of quality control measures to make sure that we're not filing defensive reports. If we could have feedback from law enforcement, that would be great. But I think realistically, that's probably not going to happen. So we need to think as an industry how we can actually make that better ourselves. And I think some form of quality control within the SAR process could make a big difference with that as well. Now, one thing I noticed in my research as well was that in almost half of the cases I looked at where we'd asked for information from the relationship managers, we hadn't even received a response. Now, whether that means that the relationship managers couldn't be bothered to respond or they didn't have time to respond or they felt it was too trivial, I don't know what the underlying cause of that is. The reality is we filed SARS in 75% of the cases that I'd looked at where there was no response from the relationship manager. So thinking about the Parvezi case that I talked about earlier, if these cases went to court, they're going to be very heavily criticised for not having engaged with the relationship manager. Now, as I say, I don't know why that might have happened in so many cases, but it's a really big issue. So again, banks need to have better internal controls to ensure that those relationship managers answer every single inquiry that's put to them. 
Secondly, I think there needs to be more training and specifically looking at different question types. Now, I'm not suggesting that we put all banking staff through a whole police interrogation course because that's far too extensive. But I think some basic understanding about different question types, conversation management and how people's situation, memory and the position they might be in at the time can influence the amount of information they give to us. How we capture that information is really important as well. And I think we also need to address the elephant in the room, which is the conflict of interest. As I mentioned, I don't have a better solution. I think the relationship manager is still the best person to be asking those questions. But we, again, should recognise that they are being put in a very, very difficult position. And again, I think there needs to be some kind of quality control measure over the responses that are received from the relationship managers and a means of ensuring every inquiry is addressed. And again, ensuring the relationship managers are properly equipped to ask those questions in a meaningful way to help the customer, but not lead or direct the answers that they're being provided with. And finally, I think it may even be helpful to do more to educate customers. Certainly some of the responses I received from um, the people that I spoke to in my research said that customers don't want to speak to us. They don't want to give us the information. They feel that we're being intrusive. We've got no right to ask for these details. This is I think partly driven by our own views that this is how I think the customer is going to behave. But I do think there must be some truth in that because a lot of the people spoke to me about actual instances where they'd had customers break down in tears. They said they were being harassed. Some very, very concerning comments coming out in the, the interviews that took place. And so it's not surprising that customers don't really want to engage with us because there's nothing in it for them. We're interrupting their day and we're asking them for information and they don't understand why we're asking them. It's an annoyance to them. And of course, some of these customers are very powerful, affluent, influential people that we might be dealing with. So it's no wonder that relationship managers don't want to ask them these difficult questions. So again, I think if we can actually help to educate customers a bit more uh, as to why we do these things, that will help to ease that pathway a, a little bit more. It's not going to solve all the problems by any means, but even if we just put something online so that people could read it. And I think if we can maybe start to educate the customers a little bit more and not treat them in such a patronizing way, perhaps, that it, it would be useful. One final question for me. Where can people find your thesis? My thesis itself can be downloaded from um, an online British Library resource called Ethos, which is E-T-H-O-S. Um, they have an online registry and you can go on there, search for my name and you'll find the, the whole thesis there. Or if people want to contact me direct, um, they can get hold of me through LinkedIn and um, I'd be more than happy to share it with them. Thank you so much, Annalise, for taking the time to chat with me and Sam today. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Captivated Audience Podcast. If you have any ideas of subjects you would like us to cover, or if you'd even like to join us and have a chat about all things financial crime prevention, feel free to reach out to us on our LinkedIn page, Captivated Audience. You can also drop us a message directly on our website, captivatedaudience.eu. Until next time, wear a mask and stay safe.